So we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark, the book of Mark, and we're going uh, paragraph by paragraph, uh, story by story, uh, through the Gospel of Mark. And we're in chapter 6. It's quite, a, quite an involved chapter. Uh, in fact, the context is super important for uh, today's message. We're, we're going to be talking about Jesus walking on the water. I decided to call it terror on the lake because the word terror is in our text. Um, and this is an amazing marathon day. Really, really, this message is partially, partially about God's call to us is, is a marathon. You know, 20, what is it, 26.2? Uh, and that's talking about miles, right? It's not feet, as far as I can tell. <laughs> I like the one, have you seen the one that's 0.0? .0? <laughs> That's my kind of race. <laughs> no, it, and marathons are long, long races. And then there's, you know, then there's extreme people that do the uh, bigger, longer things. You know, it's just insane, uh, it seems to me. <laughs> um, but this is about endurance. This is about not giving up. It's about life that is difficult. Uh, why, let's just look at their day. Their day starts in this chapter. Well, uh, you know, we have the, the terrible story of, of uh, the, the beheading, the execution of John the Baptist. This, this is probably news that they heard about this time, which was a, you know, a blow in the gut. Very bad news that uh, here Herod, in this horrible, rotten situation, has had John the Baptist beheaded, and his head is brought to the banquet on a platter. That's pretty grotesque. And this is all in the context of Jesus has sent out the 12 disciples in two by twos, so six missionary teams went out, and then they come back, and they're about, they're telling Jesus all the things that happened. They're very, very, very excited. Um, and Jesus says, listen, listen, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let, let, let's go on a retreat. Let's go ahead and we're, they're on the western, kind of northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. And that is the highly populated part of Galilee. And they get in boats, literally, to go on a retreat, to find some quiet rest. And they get on the boat, they go along the shore, apparently, uh, up to sort of the northeast side of, of the lake, which is barren. He says, let's go to a barren place. Let's go to, let's get away from the shore, this nice place here where everybody is, and get out to where it's really quiet. And yet the people, at, at this point, this is the height. Uh, if you saw a chart of the popularity of Jesus, we're at the highest level. They're, they're super excited about Jesus, and they, they, they see them getting in the boats to cross over on, on this lake at the top, and they literally run. Talk about 26.2. Uh, they run like a marathon, uh, and they beat the boats, which probably isn't that difficult. These are probably slow-going uh, rowboats. Uh, they may have had sails, too, but you know, who knows? which way the prevailing winds were blowing at this time. And these boats aren't meant for speed. You know, they're just uh, sort of plain fishing boats. They go ahead so that Jesus and the disciples uh, 
go to the place they intended to go, and they get to the shore, they get off the boat, and lo and behold, what do they see? People. <laughs> they see the crowds. And the text tells us there's 5,000 men, probably a round figure, about 5,000 men. And the text is literally saying these are the males there. And Matthew uh, says, besides the women and children. So when we say 5,000, uh, that would be saying like, well, we had 12 people in church today, or we have 15, because we're at, this is a really low number. A lot of our people are out on vacation, by the way. But, uh, you know, well, no, there's more than 15 here. Yeah, but I only counted the men. Okay. <laughs> so there's this huge crowd of people, and remember, the, the disciples have just about been out on this missionary journey. They just hear about the death of John the Baptist. And Jesus says, let's go on a retreat. And they're all excited. Yes, let's go on a retreat. So they row hard across this lake, get there, and there's fifteen to 20,000 people on the shore waiting for them. What does Jesus do? Well, he is there to serve. Uh, the book of Matthew, excuse me, the book of Mark, the theme verse is Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. He's there to work for uh, the people. And so he teaches them all day long. Uh, this is uh, the setting up for the feeding of the 5,000, right? Uh, toward the end of the day, let's speculate what time this might be. Let's say it's 4, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. The disciples notice, hey, these people have been here all day. They ran over here. They didn't bring food. And they're, they're hungry. Let's dismiss them. Let's, let's let them go into all the neighboring villages and buy themselves some food. Uh, that's the, you know, thank you folks for coming. This concludes our service. You can go home now and get some food. And Jesus says, you get them some food. You know, anyway, it's a great story. I preached it last week, or I tried to. Um, the end of the story is, of course, that they find these five little loaves and two fishes. Uh, one of the other Gospels says this was the lunch. It says a little boy gave it to them. Um, and, and Jesus does this massive miracle. He commands them all to sit in order. And uh, the Bible says that they look like a big garden patch with different well-ordered sections uh, of 50s and 100s. So there's like 200 or so of these groupings, and the disciples go out and take the bread and the fish and feed all these people. And it indicates in the text that Jesus broke all the bread and all the fish. And I'm thinking, this takes a long time. Uh, it's probably, how long would it take to feed 15,000 people? You know, uh, a long time, okay? I have no idea. Two hours, I, I think it would take at least. So let's say that this goes from uh, 5 p.m. to roughly 7. The disciples are exhausted at this point. They thought they were going on some sort of retreat in the, in the wilderness. And here they've been listening to Jesus preach all day and then participating in this massive miracle, which is bonkers wonderful, but for them, it was a whole lot of difficult labor uh, distributing the food. And so what is going to happen next? 
You know, what will Jesus say? Oh, you guys are so exhausted. Let's just camp here. Let's, you know, spend the night here or something like that. No. Look at verse 45. Our text starts at verse 45 through 52. Immediately, this is Mark's signature word. He loves immediately because things just happen like boom, and this happened. Immediately, he made, and this, this, these words are carefully translated. This is what the Bible says. He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So now they're going to go back from the eastern shore to the west shore to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So he gets a little break while they're starting to row across the lake. And like I said, let's speculate. This is 8 or 9 p.m., okay? 8 or 9 p.m. when they start this journey. It's a great time to row across a lake. <laughs> Actually, I like water, and I love swimming in lakes. And uh, one time Charlotte and I were camping up at uh, Mount Lassen. Uh, it's the volcanic national park. Um, and I believe the name of the lake was Cypress Lake. Charlotte's doing children's work, so she can't confirm that. <laughs> okay, it doesn't really matter. But uh, we were with the kids in the campground, and we put the kids down. They were old enough to sort of watch themselves. And, and I, I suggested, Charlotte, let's take, we had these little rubber boats, little inflatable boats. Let's take a little boat ride out into the lake in the dark, the light, and look at the stars and the moon. And this is going to be so fun, and this is going to be romantic. I've had some, you know, romantic ideas, right? Uh, so we get out of the lake, and this lake, we found out from reading, is like 1,500 feet deep. It's like massively deep this mass of freezing water and we've got a sixteenth of an inch of, of you know plastic between us and 1500 feet of water <laughs> I, I, that, that thought just seized me like what am I doing out here <laughs> and I, I got I totally freaked out we, we both said panic let's turn around <laughs> row back to the shore let's get back to terra firma there goes the romance out the window so being on a lake at night is really, I mean, now these guys are hardened fishermen, they're probably cool with it, I mean, I'm definitely, definitely they're cool with it, but I, I wouldn't be, I don't know about you. But anyway, so he sends them out there, and, and let's, let's, let's work through the text uh, together, and then I'll try to summarize uh, what we're saying uh, from it. So he's, he's left on the shore, he dismisses the crowd, he goes up to the mountain, and there are mountains around this lake. And see verse 47, and when evening came, that means, you know, post-sunset, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. Well, you know, mark that idea. We're going to come back to that as I summarize things. They were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night. Okay, there's a time stamp. When is that? It's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So if I'm speculating, right, and I'm pretty sure I am, 
They got out onto the lake roughly nine o'clock. In other words, they've been out there six hours at least, rowing against the wind. See why this text is about endurance. Jesus, we just want to quit. <laughs> you know, this text isn't even about survival. Uh, the, the last story was in chapter four, when the, the boat was in a, a storm and, and Jesus had to save them. He, he was asleep, remember? Uh, I think in the, in the stern, I'm not sure. Uh, and he, he, they had to wake him up. Don't you care? And they woke him up and he stilled the storm miraculously. But, and that was about life and death. But here, this is really about, I'm calling you to do hard work. The kingdom of God is, is, a, is not a 0.0 run. It's a, it's, and it's probably way beyond the 26.2. It's, it's, a, it's a hard, difficult task. You're in a cursed world. You're doing God's work. You're rowing upstream. You're going against the wind all the time. Anyway, so think about that. The wind was against them, and it was the fourth watch of the night. Six hours of this or more. So what happened? He came to them walking on the sea. He never did this before, and he never did this again. Now there are, I didn't want to take forever on this sermon, uh, there are several allusions uh, in the Old Testament, I mean like six or eight, of God walking on the water, the God is you know, of the water. So there's this history of, of the idea of God commanding the waters. But here is this man, Jesus, who's out taking a stroll on the sea. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. It's shocking. And, and look at the next phrase. Again, we're going to kind of try to summarize these things later, but I just want you to see this text. This text is brimming with amazing, awesome stuff. He comes walking to them on the sea. He meant to pass by them. <laughs> Have you noticed that? He, he, was, he was just going to walk right by them on the sea. That's the literal translation. Now, tra commentators try to bend this and oh, what that means is he was going to stop by their boat or this or that. But that's not what the language of the text says. It says he was, I think, when they saw him, he was kind of like walking right by he intended this test to continue on, and he's seeing kind of up close and personal how they are, and I think he intended to push them to the extreme already in an extreme situation. So he intended to walk by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said three beautiful things. This is three-part sermon. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished. Look how it explains this, though. For they did not understand about the loaves. One commentator said it's, it's actually possible, if not probable, while they're out there rowing, they've got these 12 baskets of 
fishing crumbs with them. I mean, they probably wouldn't have left them there. So there's, you know, got all this, this evidence of this massive miracle, and maybe they were pondering it. They didn't understand what was going on. And look, look what it says here. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. There's a super sobering ending to this story, a, a surprising ending. And then Mark likes to record the hard reality of the, the disciples' responses to the works of Jesus because he wants us to say, hey, is that me? Is my heart hardened about what God is doing in this world? Let's pray and then work through this. Father, thank you for this text, Lord. We pray that we will hear what you're saying to us. Through Jesus, amen. All right, so terror on the lake. My first point is that this is intentional. <laughs> Everything about God's work is intentional. Uh, God here in, in the person of Jesus puts his followers into extreme testing, extreme testing. In Peter, it says our faith will, is more precious than gold, which is tested by fire. And, and their faith is clearly being tested. They are being tried. And notice the, the tags to this in the text. They're abundant uh, tags to, this is an intentional test of the disciples. God didn't want to make their life easy. He's here making it hard and harder and even harder still. First of all, as I, I pointed out as I read, the, the first tag is he made his disciples get into the boat. You know, come on, Lord, we're exhausted. We can't row across this lake this time of night. Please, can we do something else? No, he forced them to get into the boat and to go before him. He's not going to be with them in the boat. The last time he went with them in the boat, he fell asleep and they had to wake him up in the middle of the storm. But he's going, uh, they're going on without him. So they won't know that Jesus is there. And he sends them into this terrible storm. This is not an accident. God controls all things. He absolutely knew there would be this terrible, uh, let's see, you would call that a westerly wind because they're headed into the west and the wind's contrary. It's coming from the west uh, directly against them. This is not an accident. Uh, it's super important to understand the sovereignty of God as we go through life. What comes our way is not an accident. It's not a freak, absurd, meaningless accident. But it is the purpose of God to test us, to see if we will endure to the end, or we, or we just quit. Let's just quit rowing, guys. Let's just go back. Um, he sends them into this terrible storm. Now, again, uh, that, I'll call that tag number three. Tag number four is uh, verse 48. It says, he saw, Jesus is looking at them from the top of the mountain. And this is again, you know, a long time into this process, five hours, six hours into the process. He saw that they were making headway painfully. See that in the text? Painfully. This is the will of God for their lives. He, he forced them to do this. He has planned this entire thing in his plan for his followers' life is pain. Does the text of Scripture say that? 
<laughs> Can I get a yes? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. This is what this text says. They weren't out of the will of God. They weren't rebelling. They weren't like Jonah, you know, fleeing from the call of God. They were exactly where God wanted them to be. And in the Holy Spirit's inspiration of this, Mark uh, re remembers Peter using this word painfully. This is a powerful word. In uh, the you know the this is written in Greek originally, and the Greek word won't help you any. It, but it's uh, basinizo. Sounds like bossa nova. You know that uh, Brazilian kind of music, which isn't very painful. But anyway, it's nothing to do with that Brazilian music. But it's Basanidzo, and it literally means to cause pain. It's the word for torture. They're tortured. They're tormented. You know, honestly, just imagine rowing for six hours. I'm sure they took turns, but all of them are completely fatigued. Again, let's go back earlier in this same day. They thought they were going to a retreat. And then they had to listen to that long-winded speaker, Jesus, all day long. And then finally they say, enough is enough, send the people away. And he says, no, you feed them. Which totally threw them for a loop. They couldn't do that. And then, then he employs them to do this massive miracle, which perhaps for them it was just a big hassle. Do we really have to do that again? And they're just completely worn out and worn out. And then Jesus puts them out there six hours, eight hours rowing, and they're in pain, agony. Um, I had the, uh, Charlotte and I had the joy of, of visiting uh, with uh, the McPhersons this week. Is, is Peter still here? He's upstairs. Okay. He's not actually there, which is totally fine. It's probably better that way. <laughs> we just had this really brief, wonderful conversation with them in their home about their brand new baby, who's, who's, who's Jasmine, which is a gorgeous little, sweet little girl. And it was a, a very brief, uh, like, a 15-minute labor, and she gave birth. It was like, boom, boom, there. But she said the pain was so intense. It was, it was uh, and my wife has had this. She had nine babies, um, and, and the, the ninth one was near, just almost as painful as the first one. I'm, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news here. <laughs> but this is our experience, okay? Yeah, and Gravita 4 for Sarah is short term, but she said the pain was like really, really bad. And that's this word in the Bible. Uh, it's R Revelation 12, verse 2. Uh, well, you know, rich text, but just listen. Revelation 12, 2. She was pregnant and she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Agony, that's this word used a handful of times in the New Testament. Wait a minute, Jesus, you designed this? I thought we were supposed to come to you and have a happy life, an easy life. I thought we were supposed to be rich and comfortable and be called to easy things, and, and we're not. His call to his disciples, he is giving them this advanced course here in reality. You know what your reality will be, guys? When you call, you come, you follow after me, you're going to take up your cross and follow me. You're going to have some agony. People are going to whack you. 
they will afflict you from your youth, Psalm 129 says. And so that's this word. That's I'm calling that the fourth tag of Jesus puts his followers into extreme testing. So let's, who wants to be a follower of Jesus? You know, sign me up. That sounds like quite a deal. Uh, you know, <laughs> when do I get the, 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 the fried uh, Twinkies? You know, the deep fried Twinkies. Uh, he, and, and, okay, so that's fourth tag. And this is all in the text. I think the fifth tag is he walked on the water to them, but intended to walk past them. This is, again, his intention. It was his will. Why? Why, Lord Jesus? Because quite honestly, sometimes in our difficulty and agony, we'll say, where is the Lord? You know, I kind of sensed he was near, but then he seemed to just, he, he seemed to just walk away. He didn't relieve me. I'm in this intense pain. And of course, that's the point, perhaps, of the teaching point when things start to change for the disciples. They, they see Jesus out there, and this is kind of maybe Jesus' view of what was going on, although it was pitch black, and this is kind of what they see, sort of a specter, a, a, a ghost on the water, and they, they scream out in terror. Very important point in the text. Uh, look at it here, verse 49. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. It's actually the Greek word is phantasma. It was, a, it was a phantom. And they, they saw him. They thought he was a ghost, and they cried out. Now, this is an awesome word the Holy Spirit has chosen through Mark here. It's used one other time earlier in the gospel. And that was in chapter 1, when Jesus is in the synagogue preaching. And remember what happened? A, a man. It says a man with an unclean spirit cried out. This is a deep back of the throat cry. It, it actually, the uh, Greek word is like the wor- uh, root of our word crow. Crow! <laughs> Deep crying out. You can hear the crows crying. It's in, in extreme panic. They cried out a sh- and Kenneth Wiest, one of the great American Bible uh, scholars of a previous generation, published in 1950, said, a shriek of terror. Again, well, clearly they were out of the will of God. They were, they were being disobedient and they were where God did not want them and that's why things were hard for them. No, no. They were exactly where God wanted them and he wants them to realize their inadequacies and how much they need him and it's actually good to shriek in terror. Uh, it's good to cry out in pain because uh, that's what God hears. That's what he hears. Um, in a moment, we're going to refer to this passage, but remember in Exodus 3, where Moses is commissioned to go back into Egypt? Remember what God says? He says, I have heard the suffering of my people. I know what's going on. It's as if I've been on a mountaintop seeing what they are going through, and I hear their cries for help. And this is a 400-year endurance test for the people of Israel. And so when they cry out, that's when Jesus comes 
and answers them in this beautiful word. It's his three-part three little, little sermon here. Um, verse 50 is the word has terrified. For, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately, without delay, because of their shriek of terror, Jesus speaks his word into this terrifying situation. But immediately he spoke to them and said three things. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So let's think about those three things really quickly. First of all, take heart. It means to be, be courageous in this thing. You know, don't give in to panic and terror. Take heart. It really reminds me of Joshua chapter 1. Turn in your Bible there. This should be, and I think it probably is, to many of you, a very familiar passage. It's after the first five books, you have Joshua and chapter 1. God is commissioning Joshua to a, a really thankless, difficult job, which is leading God's people uh, into the promised land. And uh, let's just look uh, at, um, just cut in at verse 5. It says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Even though it may seem like it sometimes, I will not. And then here's the words that this, this first word of Jesus, be courageous, remind us of be strong and courageous you've got to have courage and you've got to have confidence in me for for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that i swore to their fathers to give them verse 7 only be strong and very courageous be careful to do according to all the law that moses my servant commanded you do not turn from it to the right or to the left it's going to take courage to stick to the Word of God. Many, many temptations to turn left or, or right, but stick with it. Be courageous sticking with the Word of God. Um, right or left, verse 7, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. In a, in a, excuse me, in a very real way, Jesus gives them his word out in the middle of the sea, out in the middle of the lake. He's giving them his word, and that may be all that you and I get. Uh, Jesus will get into their boat and calm the storm. We probably won't see Jesus in the same way that they did, but we have his word, and we're to meditate on his word day and night to keep trusting him through the mediation of his precious word. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. This is very important. The first piece of advice to Jesus. Don't give up. Don't give in to the panic. Be courageous. I'm here. I'm in this. You're not going to be abandoned. You know, the story doesn't end here. You don't uh, die of exhaustion here in the middle of the lake. 
I am here. Take heart. Now, the next thing he says is even more poignant and interesting. It is, it, it's translated, it is I, here. But it's really just two Greek words that are pretty exciting if you're a, study, a student of the Bible. It's ego and me. Ego and me. Now, some of you were with me when we went through the Gospel of John. It was a couple of years ago. John uses ego and me a lot. Uh, it, it's uh, loaded words. Now, did the disciples understand this theological complexity out in the middle of the lake that day? Perhaps not. But it probably resonated, res, resonated uh, in their hearts and minds at least something there. Why is that? Because ego and me is really, I am. Jesus said, take heart, I am. In fact, it's actually emphatic. I, I am. Why is that significant? Well, uh, let's look at one of the references in John where this ego and me, this Greek two words are, are uh, for us. And it's John 8, John 8, 58 through 59. Uh, it's in the middle of a whole discussion, which we don't have time to explain. But Jesus said to them, truly, truly, you know, and that's, that's the Greek is uh, borrowing right from the Aramaic. Amen, amen, he says. Absolutely, this is true. Amen, amen. I say to you, before Abraham was, ego emi, I am. And what did the Jewish audience say to this? It says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. This is a capital offense. In other words, he's worthy of death because he's claimed to be God. Because it goes back to, I already referenced, Again, let's turn in your Bible. Please, if you have a Bible or if you're using an electronic version, uh, turn with me, uh, everybody. If you don't have the Bible in the pew, uh, take the Bible out of the pew. And please, turn to Exodus 3. Turn to Exodus 3. This is a crucial passage. Every Christian should be actually super familiar with this. And, and if you are, it won't hurt to review it again. So everybody has a book in their hand. And they're going to look with me at Exodus chapter 3. This is the burning bush uh, incident. And uh, I, again, it's way too long and it deserves a whole beautiful uh, explanation on its own. But let's, let's just look at... Um, I want to read the whole thing, but I know that that's probably too much. Um, yeah, let's, let's, I already referred to this a little bit, so I'm going to start at verse 6. Please uh, bear with me. Um, right, is every, everybody's awake? It looks like everybody's awake. We're, we're good. This, this is so important. It's like, hey, this is important. Read this. Look, let your eyes look at it as I read it. Exodus 3, verse 6. And he said to him, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And I already said that compares to Jesus seeing our affliction in the trouble that he's called us to and, and what the disciples are going through in the lake of terror. I have surely seen the affliction 
of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Okay, we could selfishly put a parens here and say, okay, so why didn't you intervene like 200 years ago? Generations have come and gone under this affliction. Well, the best answer is, first of all, it's okay to ask questions like that. Uh, those are faithful questions. And the best answer, honestly, is, well, God knows what he's doing, and we don't understand what he's doing a good portion of the time. And he will bring deliverance when he will. Maybe it's not a satisfying answer, but that's the best answer we have. Verse 8, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That all sounds beautiful, but by the way, you have to drive out the local residents. You have to go to war with Joshua to clean this place up. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people, remember our shriek of terror from the boat in the middle of the night, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said, now we're getting to the juicy bit that I really wanted to read this for. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. So Jesus is essentially quoting this in the middle of the sea. He's saying, take heart, I am. It's clearly a uh, claim of divinity. He is God. He is equal. He is God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is Yahweh. He is the one who is self-existing. He's the one who controls the storm. He's the one who controls the 1,500 uh, foot deep lake. He's, he's there. You, no reason to panic. He knows what he's doing. I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent me to you. Verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So we'll stop there. And the Yahweh, the name of God, 
uh, sometimes mispronounced Jehovah in, a, in an old historical sense, uh, English sense, is based on the Hebrew verb to be. Yahweh is the one who exists. He's not derived or dependent. He is the creator. Everything else is created. He's the one we can trust. He has all power. He can walk on water. He can take five loaves, two fish, and feed 20,000 people. He simply does anything he wants. He's all-powerful. This book is about a supreme being who's absolutely powerful, who spoke the world into existence. And, and we're called to, to follow him and to be his workers. So back to our text, he says three things to them in, in calming them down. He says, I am. He says, take heart. It is verse, verse 50. It is I, do not be afraid. Do not give in to panic. He wants them to trust him as he has called out to them. So he wants them to trust his word. I love, I love the image of God. Christ is the Lion of Judah. Of course, uh, Aslan made great uh, history in the pages of the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's as if the Lion is saying, be strong and of a good courage. And then it says he got into the boat. And he got into the boat. This is a kind of an artistic rendering of that moment. You know, they, go, they go from, don't ask me why there's only seven disciples. I guess a few of them are lost. Who knows? <laughs> but you know, it went from crazy wind, contrary wind, to whoosh, silence. This is a massive miracle. Jesus walks on water, which is miraculous. And here he can he can take away the test anytime he wants to. And he does. He takes it away. The wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished. And this is where we close today. Because this is where our text closes. They were utterly astonished. But they missed what was going on. Because they had a hard heart. Here's the disciples probably just thinking about themselves. Uh, they, they were thinking, well... I don't know what they were thinking. It's just hard to imagine. But it says their heart was hardened. And this is some special language, of course. Uh, first of all, it's the heart. He doesn't say their mind or their will, but their heart was hardened. And this, this is indicating it's the center of this, this being. His, his reason, his inner man, his, his affections and his will was closed down. I I don't believe in this miracle. This whole thing is just frustrating to me. And uh, no, I'm not interested. I'm hardened. Their heart was it was hardened. And the here's this is again from Kenneth Wiest. He's commenting on was hardened. It's a perfect tense verb, emphasizing a settled state of dullness, callousness, and lack of understanding. And these are the disciples of Jesus. The followers of Jesus were in a settled state of dullness. It's like miracles. I'm not excited about a miracle. It doesn't matter to me. I don't, I don't even know if I believe in those miracles. They're a bunch of myths as far as I know. I don't know. I don't care. I'm callous. I'm closed. I'm not interested in what God 
is doing. And a lack of understanding. They're, they're puzzling about the loaves. Just believe. Jesus did this massive miracle. What's, what's to not understand? Yes, it's massive. It's unbelievable. But believe. Trust him. This is the nature of God. You know, God is infinite and powerful. But their hearts were hardened. How do we fit into that? How does that compare to our lives? I, I, I want to submit to you that you and I are, are immersed in miracles. Every single, every single moment of our life where we are a miracle. You know what's going on in our bodies right now? It's miraculous. It's, it's unbelievably complex. Uh, one of my sons is taking some college classes in biology. And the, the teacher said this past week, that when you study biology, you probably didn't say it quite like that, you look at all these um, you know, intricate structures and, and how they function, and it gives you the distinct impression that there's a design there, that there might be even an intelligent design. You know? <laughs> and he's saying, saying, no, it's all, it'll all happen by accident through, through the wonder of evolution. But evolution is so good, it deceives you into thinking there is a designer. Uh, well, there is a designer. And it actually, if you really honestly study the universe and you study biology, you'll find things that cannot possibly be explained through freakish accidents that happened over millions of years. Uh, there, it's called irreducible complexity. You know, you can't get there through a, a series of freakish accidents. So this is my opinion. We are immersed in miracles. You know, ever hold a baby? Um, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. <laughs> hold a baby. It's miraculous. And this is a human being of, of, of trillions of cells functioning so well. It's just amazing. We are surrounded by miracles. And, but we're callous. We're dull. We act like we don't understand them. The fact that a blade of grass grows is miraculous. The fact that grass can stand up is an engineering uh, phenomena, actually. That the little tiny things to the big things. We, we should be dumbfounded. We should be filled with marvel and wonder at what is all around us all the time. But unfortunately, many times we have a heart of stone. So i just close then with this summary idea. First of all, God does test us. There's no two ways about it. God does test us. He's testing our faith. We referred earlier to 1 Peter, and it says there that we go through various trials as God's test for us. And the analogy that Peter uses for the testing is the refining of gold, which takes about something like 1,500 to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit to melt gold. Not easy difficult, painful. God does test us. He's testing you. Secondly, God does hear us. It's so reassuring. They cried out. The shriek of terror. He heard that. He heard, he heard his people. And then let us hear him. You know, Jesus gave his word. Let us hear the word. Let's trust the word through the trials that are around us. And then I think this is true too. God is constantly doing fantastic miracles. We live in a world that is miraculous in and of itself. Constantly doing it. 
So we, I think we should pray for a heart of flesh. Here is Ezekiel 36, 26. It says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will restore, I will remove the heart of stone and, excuse me, let me, let me read this again. I'm ordering it. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is the miracle. God wants to do a heart transplant. Uh, to us, to give us a heart that responds to God. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand this reality that you call us to very difficult tests and the last thing you want us to do is to quit and just let the wind blow us back to the eastern side where we were before. Help us to obey you and stick to what you have called us to, even when it's painful. We see this text that says they were in agony, like even a woman giving birth, very painful. And yet you called them to persevere, and in their shriek of terror, you heard them. Thank you for hearing our cries, O Lord. Help us to hear your word and be reassured. O Lord, we thank you that we can trust you and that you give us free grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. And help us to trust you through the difficult trials to give you honor. In the name of Jesus, amen.